Hello, good morning, and welcome to Line One, your health connection. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Clark. Have you ever wondered if your bowel movements are normal? Is it too soft? Is it too hard? Is it a weird color or a weird smell? Is it painful? Is there blood? On this episode of Line One, we will be discussing bowel movements and irritable bowel syndrome. And if there's time, we may go into inflammatory bowel disease and colon cancer and screening. To help us answer these questions, I am pleased to have gastroenterologist Dr. Austin Nelson. Please give us a call toll-free statewide at 1-888-353-5752. 1-888-353-5752. In Anchorage at 550-8433. 550-8433. Or email me at line1 at alaskapublic.org. Dr. Nelson, it is a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you so much, Dr. Clark. It's good to be here. I sure appreciate you inviting me on. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So I want to give you an opportunity to start out by giving the uh, listeners here a sense of uh, where you're from, what your training is, how you got yourself into gastroenterology. Wonderful. Yeah, I've, it's uh, once again very good to be here. I um, So originally I'm from a town just north of Salt Lake City, Utah. I uh, grew up there and uh, education at the University of Utah. Um, I ended up going through the military um, through for my medical training and medical school and was in San Antonio for many years where I did my formal training at uh, Wilford Hall Medical Center and San Antonio Military Medical Center, uh, both in internal medicine and gastroenterology. Uh, did some uh, specialized training for a while in advanced endoscopy at Baylor uh, Medical Center in Dallas, and then I would spent several months in uh, UCSF in San Francisco doing some training and uh, uh, and inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, and colitis. Ultimately, I came to Alaska via the military. I was uh, chief of GI for several years at uh, base here at J-Bear, and ultimately I'm a partner here at Alaska Digestive and Liver Disease uh, downtown. So uh, enjoy being here. I love Alaska, and, and uh, we're here forever. So, <laughs> Yeah, a lot of us uh, uh, military trainees are... It's a pipeline for the uh, private practice up here. Um, full disclosure, Dr. Nelson and I worked together for quite some time in the military. Um, gosh, we must have known each other now about 10 years or so, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just thinking about it the other day. I think it actually has been about 10 years, so time flies. Well, we are happy to have you today and uh, to share your expertise on uh, the colon and poop. Um, I got to tell you, I, uh, you know, poop jokes... Um, are not my favorite joke, but they are a solid number two. But a bunch. Okay. All right. I had to get that out of my system. Uh, well done. So um, for those of our listeners who listen to my shows, uh, they know kind of what I like to do before we get into the pathology or the abnormal is to sort of uh, talk about what is normal. And I know that there's a large spectrum of what's normal for bowel movement, bowel movements. But let's start with the gastroenterologist uh, uh, definition of what kind of a normal bowel movement is. 
Yeah, great question. And it's a constantly moving target a little bit. Everyone kind of has their own normal. And now on average, we typically say that you, know, you have one to two formed bowel movements a day. Uh, without any straining associated with those bowel movements, and that's kind of average. But you could, you know, some people will have anywhere between three and four as long as they're, um, you know, formed um, per day. Um, the And you can have up to three per week, and that could still even be considered normal, as long as, once again, they're normal kind of sausage-shaped stool with some small cracks in them. And the and you don't have to do any straining associated with it, um, but on average you're looking at one to two bowel movements a day um, for most individuals. Okay, yeah, I remember in my in my training, um, you know, when we we talked about hemorrhoids and things like that from a surgical surgical perspective, um, there was kind of an adage of anywhere from three times a day to three times a week is sort of the range of normal. So it sounds like that kind of fits with what you're saying. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. So you mentioned the the um, kind of the formed stool. So I will refer our listeners to our our promo or our our website. There is a link for something called the Bristol Stool Chart, B-R-I-S-T-O-L, Bristol Stool Chart. And uh, it's a wonderful uh, thing to just look at if you just want to Google it because it, it does show about seven categories of types of stool. And so I have it here in front of me, um, Dr. Nelson, but um, perhaps you can, you can go through it or um, kind of talk about which ones, what they are, which one's normal, which one's abnormal. Absolutely, yeah, there's, so as you mentioned, there are seven different types on that Bristol stool scale. Um, and this, it actually gives a nice kind of a visual representation of what your stool should be. You know, because sometimes it's, oftentimes people don't like to talk about stool. You know, it's sometimes those are a very sensitive subject. But what it does is it really gives us some good assessment of um, what your stool looks like and, and uh, really what it should look like. So if we go, you know, from a constipation perspective, and these type 1 Bristol stool is typically what I refer to as the moose pellets. Um, very hard, kind of separate in little ball-like fashion. That is a representation of kind of a, a constipation type presentation. Uh, type two is where they are formed, um, but they are very lumpy, uh, kind of sausage-like, but once again, a lot of deep uh, ridges in them, more of an appearance as if the moose pellets were all stuck together in one. That's kind of a type two. Three and fours are what we look at as normal. So um, those are sausage shaped with some fine cracks in the surface uh, versus smooth, um, more snake-like, and those are considered normal bowel movements. Uh, type five on the Bristol stool still is where you kind of just, they're separated at this point. Um, they're kind of soft blobs, but with clear cut edges to them. Uh, in that particular setting, you're, those are individuals who probably need a little bit more fiber in their diet. Um, and then six and seven are diarrhea-related issues. So mushy, uh, more like mashed potato type, uh, runny mashed potato consistency with some ragged edges. And then type seven is just liquid with no solid pieces. And so it's it's a really nice good pictorial representation of where you're at, but those are, we, we look at these all the time, and whenever you see your primary care doctor there, once again, they're a good representation of where you should be, but type threes and fours are typically where we like to have most individuals at. 
Okay, and, I, and I'll thank you kindly for ruining mashed potatoes for me there, um, <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Nelson. But um, we have a, an, a, um, an email from uh, uh, a Larry, and Larry um, says that he remembers a, a movie where uh, with Anthony Hopkins where there was a line that said, your excrement should be no more malodorous than a spadeful of freshly turned earth. And <laughs> he would like to know if... Um, uh, if there's any evidence or science behind uh, cleansing enemas, which um, is uh, some sometimes recommended, um, and also if uh, kind of gas exiting with the bowel movements is is sort of a normal thing. So I'll pose that to you there. Uh, yeah, great question. I appreciate you asking that. So, so yes, there is, um, you know, the smell of your stool, there's a ver there's a variety of different things that can cause some both malodorous um, stools and different consistencies of stools and some of those are just related to food we eat to uh, certain types of carbohydrates can cause us to have more uh, malodorous stools sometimes if we're having infections in our colon or if there's inflammation in the colon that can cause some malodorous stool. Um, but the bacteria in our colon is exquisitely complicated. We have trillions of bacteria, but honestly, it's this very beautiful symbiotic relationship we, with, that we have with bacteria. Um, and those certainly play a big role in gas production too, and how you know the, one of the byproducts of bacteria in food is is it creates gas. Certain types of gas gets excreted. Uh, which is a normal part of our digestive process. Uh, now, certainly if we have too much gas, you know, sometimes that can represent, uh, once again, some inflammation in the colon or too much bacteria up in the small intestine. Um, the, but it's a normal amount to have a normal gas that passes with stool. That's a very normal process. Um, now, cleansing enemas, those are all, I get that question all of the time. Um, they're, you know, in, in a, in a picture-perfect world, um, if you're having kind of those type 3, 4 Bristol stools, most of the time you shouldn't need to be undergoing cleansing enemas. Um, they're, now, sometimes they can be incredibly helpful if you're having some constipation-related issues. That said, if you're, um, you know, if you are undergoing frequent enemas, sometimes you can disrupt that normal colonic bacteria that you have. Um, is it completely harmful? No. Uh, it's, you know, most of the time people do totally fine with it. But typically we only recommend it if, if you're having some major constipation issues, not just on a routine basis to clean or your body out. Our body does a very good job of managing our own bacteria. Um, you know, typically we would recommend more of a good prebiotic diet um, instead of kind of undergoing those big cleansing enemas uh, to kind of regulate and keep those, those, those bacteria happy. Excellent. Well, I want to give our call-in numbers again here for our listeners. Uh, just a reminder, uh, toll-free statewide, one 553 5752 Anchorage 550-8433, or email us at line1 at org. So you brought up a couple good questions there, Dr. Nelson. We, you know, we, have, we can talk about kind of the, the prebiotics, probiotics, gut bacteria, that sort of thing. Um, so I, I do have a question here about the moose pellet comment. 
um, this this particular um, individual had it was noted like had goat droppings or moose pellets early in their life, and then it was mostly normal, and now it seems like they're as an adult they're back towards the moose pellet. And she doesn't quite feel like everything comes out when she has a bowel movement. So the question kind of is, is, um, is there anything that can be done about that? Or is there anything concerning about that? Um, maybe talk about type 1 a little bit. Sure. Yeah, so type 1s are never normal, um, yeah, especially when you're having a bowel movement and you don't have the sense of complete evacuation. So whenever you have a bowel movement, you should, you know, sit on the commode for three to five minutes, uh, very minimal straining, and you should feel complete relief once you're done. If you get up and you still feel like you haven't completely emptied your rectum and you're having those kind of type one stool patterns, that is some severe constipation. Um, so yes, abnormal. Uh, typically, if that occurs later on in life, especially over the age of 45, or if you've had a sudden change in your bowel habits like that, we would need to look into that um, a little bit further. But from a treatment perspective, there are some very conservative things and have a tendency to work very well are fiber, uh, good fiber supplements. We typically recommend 25 to 30 grams of fiber in your diet a day. Um, you know, from a combination of both foods and supplements if need be. Uh, you know, once you're past that point and if you're still having a lot of those type 1 stools, you know, that's where you should kind of talk to your doctor about it. Typically, there's some very good over-the-counter therapies that don't cause your colon to contract. Um, there, you know, medicines like Miralax um, that work very well that kind of just alter the consistency of your stool. Um, but, you know, if you're having those symptoms at a later point in your life or if you've had severe problems, yeah, that's definitely something that you should have looked at um, and kind of get some help with managing because that's abnormal to have that for a prolonged period of time. Okay. So that would be a reason to talk with your, your primary care or get a referral to, to yourself or a gastroenterologist. Correct. Yep. Okay. So what about color? Why, why is the stool the color that it is? And does an alteration of that color, you know, is it necessarily concerning or what, what could it potentially mean? Great question. I get this all of the time in clinics. So, so color, um, there's a lot of things that affect color. One of the main things is actually bile. Uh, bile is something that's secreted from our liver um, and down into our small bowel. And essentially what it does is it mixes with our food and helps us absorb fats. By the time that bile breaks down some of those fat compositions in our food and it hits our colon, it turns into that brown consistency that we like to see. So normally it should be kind of a straightforward brown, but it can have some variations, but all should be on the brown spectrum. Uh, so I got a lot of questions about green stool. Oh, my <laughs> stool's green. Um, <clears throat> where, what, where does that and why does that happen? Well, a couple of different reasons. Sometimes, so bile in and of itself is actually a green color. Um, if you are having any malabsorption problems where the stool and food is moving too quickly through your small bowel um, and colon, it will come out and it just doesn't have time to sit in your colon for a while, it will come out green. So oftentimes that's when you have severe diarrhea, you'll have green colored 
stool. Um, so infections, sometimes, you know, malabsorption problems with the pancreas can give you some really green stools. Um, the, uh, but sometimes people just have a tendency to be a little bit looser, and, they, and sometimes it's very normal. That's just who they're normal. But that's typically what we see when we see a green-colored stool that you're just moving too quickly through the colon. Um, yellow uh, stools, sometimes we do see that. Um, the, once again, that can be at times some malabsorption issues, but oftentimes greasy where you're not absorbing the fats and you can get some yellow-like consistency to your stool. Um, the, and then I get questions about pale-colored stool, like almost a gray color. Typically when we see something like that is where we're not getting any bile into our, our bowel, and sometimes we worry that we're having a blockage of the bile. You know, sometimes gallstones can cause that or anything that's impeding with the blockage of the bile. So if you ever have any pale-colored stools, that's definitely something that you need to talk to your doctor or us about. Um, then black stools, that's another one we do get questions about frequently. So black-colored stools is an indication of blood um, at some point in the upper portion of your GI tract. Uh, so typically when you're bleeding, as that blood gets digested down through the colon, it will turn to black and kind of a tarry-like substance. So that's, once again, very abnormal. If you ever have any black-colored stool, you need to seek medical attention for that. Um, the, and then obviously red um, is indicative of blood in your stool, and that is abnormal too. So those are kind of the stool spectrums, green, yellow, a pale-colored, and then black and red. Um, but the normal really should just be a, a solid brown color. Okay. Yeah, that's a lot, a lot of spectrum there. A lot of diseases that can 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 change the the color for sure. We see that, like yep. you said, in gallstones. Where you see that uh, the pale color sometimes really Coca Cola colored urine will go with that, and then uh, certainly the black can can lead to that bleeding up high. So, thanks for that um, kind of spectrum there. I, we do have a call. I'd like to take next. Uh, Grace is calling from Fairbanks. Grace, welcome to line one. Thank you. What can we answer for you, Grace? So I have had, um, I was diagnosed with IBS uh, pretty young, in like my early 20s, and I had stomach problems all growing up. Well, <clears throat> so I started having a, a pain kind of on my lower left side, and I went in for a colonoscopy, and we found that um, my, so my lower colon is like empty, but then there's a really small when you go, it goes up farther, it just gets really, really narrow. And so things are just kind of getting stuck there. And then there's nothing that's really happening with the lower colon. Like it doesn't, I don't have like an urge to, to push and things can't come out because there's no, like the muscles aren't really doing much because there's nothing there. So I guess my question is, is that with an instance where you have like a, a smaller opening, um, would you guys recommend doing like a surgery or something to open that up more? Because they've, I've been told just to take more fiber and laxatives, and I don't want to have to like take tons of laxatives all my life. Sure, that well, that's a that's a good question, Grace. Um, we can start with Dr. Nelson on that, and, and if uh, maybe we can touch on the surgical aspects as well. So, Dr. Nelson, anything for Grace? Yeah, thanks so much for that question, Grace, and all very good questions. Um, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, and we can spend hours talking about that, but it's a very complex uh, physiologic process uh, that occurs sometimes with a lack of contraction in certain segments of your bowel, and sometimes it's a lack of 
you know, nerve synchrony in your bowel. And so you can get areas where that's just not syncing up very well. And that, that causes pain. It can cause constipation. It can cause diarrhea. Um, you know, and I'm not sure exactly where this segment is in your colon, whether or not it's just a lack of kind of contractions in that area or if there's like a true definitive what we call stricture in there. Um, the, you know, certainly we like to avoid surgery unless, you know, you absolutely need it. But um, there, there is lots of good therapies from, you know, a constipation perspective that you can be on for a very lengthy period of time um, the, that can help augment that, uh, must, that certain segment that may be not contracting very well and can kind of keep those stools a little bit softer to help you go through that area. But ultimately, the surgical question would be depending on, you know, the, the severity of the narrowing and really the underlying cause of it, whether or not it's just a muscular problem or if there's like some true inflammation in that area. Yeah, and I'll add from a surgical perspective, we can always, um, you know, take out a small section of the colon and put it back together. It, it does depend exactly where it is because the blood supply of the colon is very limited. And so certain, and in a lot of times you have to take out sections of the colon, not just a little bit. So really would depend on uh, the, the underlying cause of that narrowing kind of where it is as well. So thank, thanks for the call, Grace. Um, we're going to take a quick break here. You are listening to Line One, your health connection. If you have a question or a comment for our guest today, call us statewide, 1-888-353-5752 or in Anchorage, 550-8433. After the short break, we'll continue our discussion on bowels and the colon with gastroenterologist Dr. Austin Nelson. You're listening to Line 1 from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line 1 on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. The Alaska State Library Talking Book Center has audiobooks and more for children and adults who are unable to read standard print. Learn more at talkingbooks.alaska.gov. This message sponsored by the Alaska Library Network. Welcome back to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Clark. I am joined by gastroenterologist, Dr. Austin Nelson. Do you have a question about uh, irritable bowel syndrome? Call us toll-free statewide, 1-888-353-5752. 1-888-353-5752. In Anchorage, 550-8433. Or email us, line1 at alaskapublic.org. Okay, Dr. Nelson, we're getting a few uh, emails um, about uh, IBS. So I think we'll, we'll do our next uh, segment on that and then maybe do a cleanup of all the other questions we're getting. So I want to start this segue with an email from, from Susan. 
And Susan says she has a nervous stomach and the need to defecate immediately. She wants to know if this is part of IBS and mentions, you know, as soon as she knows the restroom's not available, then of course the urge is there. So um, I guess my question is, you know, what is the what is the definition of irritable bowel syndrome? Yeah, great question, and thank you so much for the question. It's um, irritable bowel syndrome is a very complicated and complex process that is very common, uh, very very common. We see it quite a bit. Um, so, basically, the diagnostic criteria for irritable bowel syndrome is recurrent abdominal t- pain. Um, at least one day a week uh, for the previous three months um, with either a couple of different things that's related to defecation or having a bowel movement or that's associated with the change in stool frequency or form. So we kind of, there's really three different types of irritable bowel syndrome. Um, constipation predominant, diarrheal predominant, or a mixed predominant where you kind of flipped back and forth between diarrhea and constipation, but primarily pain um, one day per week, at least three months worth, and it's related to changes in your stool patterns and defecation. Okay, so what would be a typical, I mean, well, I can't say typical because there's so many different presentations, but um, what would be some of the, the common symptoms of someone who may think they have IBS, like like abdominal pain and cramping and bloating or, or uh, a, just a change in the bowel movements from their normal? What, what would be some of the presenting symptoms? So irritable bowel syndrome is always associated with pain. Um, so what, what kind of a classic presentation of irritable bowel syndrome is, is you get uh, abdominal pain um, that can be cramping and can be associated with uh, bloating that is relieved with the bowel movement. Um, and so you get some improvement after you have a bowel movement. And frequently, just as this last um, question was posed, you, you can have some urgency with it. So uh, frequently you'll have to know where the bathroom is everywhere you go. And you know when you eat or you consume some food, that triggers a normal neurologic response, but it's exacerbated in individuals with irritable bowel syndrome where they will go and they will have a bowel movement and then typically their symptoms will improve after you have a bowel movement, uh, whether that be constipation or diarrhea um, or even that mixed um, pattern of irritable bowel syndrome. Now, the problem with irritable bowel syndrome, and this is where it can be very tricky sometimes, is inflammatory conditions of the GI tract can also present with very similar presentations. And so, you know, some, if you have blood in your stool, that should never be ignored. You know, that needs to be looked at definitely further. Um, you know, if you're having symptoms that wake you up at night, like you were in pain and you have to have a bowel movement at night, that is not typical of irritable bowel syndrome either. Um, but, you know, individuals who come in, they eat, they get pain, they have a bowel movement, that bowel movement gets better, sometimes exacerbated with stress. That can also be playing a role with it. Uh, that's all kind of the classic type presentation for irritable bowel. Okay, and it can be, like you said, uh, diarrhea predominant or constipation predominant or even a mix. So, so it's not, not necessarily one is diagnostic of IBS. Correct, yep, it can be one, any one of those three, yep. Okay, I have a, um, 
an email question regarding, um, uh, let's see, oxalate, oxalate, and that may be a role in, for inflammatory bowel disease, but is there any role for oxalate in IBS and maybe touch on oxalate for, for Brian's question? Uh, yeah, great question. O- you know, oxalates are, have been looked at in several different types of, inf- you know, GI disorders. Um, you know, there is some promising related data on that, but none of it has been well-founded or formed for the treatment of irritable bowel syndrome. Um, the um, it, it, part of that problem could be just the study design with those particular substances, but um, but we don't routinely recommend for or against oxalates in the treatment of irritable bowel syndrome at the present time. Okay. But once again, that could just be a lack of data. So. Okay. And I was, I was reading a little bit about something called the Rome criteria mm-hmm. for uh, IBS. Can you... Can you explain what that is um, in terms of the, the types? Absolutely, yep. So there, Rome criteria is this diagnostic criteria that we've used for several years to evaluate um, uh, treatment of underlying or diagnos- diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. So we're currently on the fourth iteration of Rome criteria, and that is um, the, once again, that's, pain for three months, um, at least three months, at least one day or a week, and you have to have two or more of the following. It has to be a change in your stool frequency, a change in your stool form, or it has to be re- that pain has to be related to having a bowel movement. So if you have one of those, pain over the three months, one day a week, or one of the two, two two things related to defecation or changes in your bowel habits, either diarrhea, mix, or constipation. That is the diagnostic criteria for um, irritable bowel syndrome. Okay. And, and so that's the real criteria. Clinic, so that's the clinical diagnosis based on symptoms. Is there any other test that you typically do when you're looking to diagnose this? Um, or is it a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning you have to kind of rule out all, everything else before getting this diagnosis? Excellent question, actually. That is one that's in constant flux right now, that it is not a what we call a diagnosis of exclusion per se. Um, the If you meet those criteria without any other what we call red flag features, meaning you know, there's something else concerning in your presentation, um, and that would include uh, you know, blood in your stool. That's obviously one thing that where you have to look into that further. Um, if you're having diarrhea that's out of the ordinary, meaning, you know, if you're having five to 10 bowel movements a day, that is not consistent with irritable bowel syndrome. Um, if you're having symptoms that wake you up at night, you know, you have pain and you have to suddenly run into the bathroom at two o'clock in the morning, that is not consistent with irritable bowel syndrome. If you're having weight loss with these symptoms, that's typically not consistent with irritable bowel syndrome. So those kind of concerning features, if you're having some of those, that would not meet that diagnostic criteria. But aside from that, if everything else is you know, totally fine and you're not having any of those issues I had addressed, then the then yes, that it is, if you meet that criteria, then you can say that that's irritable bowel syndrome. And I will throw a caveat in there. If you do have a history of, a family history of things like Crohn's disease 
or ulcerative colitis or other autoimmune diseases, um, we typically like to talk about your symptoms a little bit more before we give the label of irritable bowel syndrome just because early inflammatory bowel disease can look a little bit like um, irritable bowel syndrome. Okay. So, yeah, it gets on the spectrum there. And I'll let the listeners know if we don't have time, we will probably won't have a lot of time today to talk about inflammatory bowel disease, but um, I will um, certainly be having uh, hopefully Dr. Nelson back or one of his colleagues for a discussion on that. Um, okay, Austin, um, let's get through some of the emails I'm getting here. Quite a few, yep. so th- I want to thank the listeners for their participation today. Question is about statins. Can statins affect bowel movements um, other than constipation, or can they increase gas production? Great question. Statins have kind of been looked at in um, multiple different areas. Um, the It's kind of all over the board, actually, with statins. Um, it can cause, actually, and, it, and we really don't know why it causes such a variety of symptoms in individuals, but it can cause some mild abdominal pain, um, and it actually can give both diarrhea and constipation in uh, individuals. So why we why that causes some of those issues we don't know but it you know can cause some of those i would say more often than not it can cause some constipation and bloating issues um, more so than diarrhea but we do see some diarrhea associated with statins too okay okay and let's see sorry i'm reading reading this one here um i'm getting multiple emails here regarding diverticulitis and uh well so we maybe I'll have you touch on just what diverticula are, what diverticulitis is. But but the main thing that people want to know is this whole uh, adage about nuts and seeds and diet. So um, I guess give me your spiel on uh, diverticula, Dr. Nelson. Yeah, uh, always an ever constant question. So diverticulosis or diverticula are these little outpouchings on your colon wall. Very, very common, um, especially as we age. You can basically take your age and that's the percentage chance that you have of having diverticula. In and of themselves, they are benign. Um, now that said, they can get infected and that's diverticulitis. Um, and that, that causes some severe abdominal pain. It can cause fevers, you know, that can get really severe. And that can happen at times. It's still uncommon given the amount of diverticula that are out there. So the risk of that happening is still low. Now, there used to be an adage about seeds and nuts um, associated with diverticulosis. And, you know, there's theories in the past where one of those would get stuck in the diverticulum and causing diverticulitis. That has kind of been debunked over the years. Sometimes people feel better when they, if they have had diverticulitis, sometimes they feel better not consuming those things, but it does not put you at risk for getting diverticulitis. So I routinely tell my patients that if they're fine and they have diverticulosis, that there's no reason that you shouldn't eat seeds and nuts and popcorn. It's not going to necessarily push you one way or another. Uh, Individuals with diverticulitis, it's just really, at the end of the day, bad luck uh, that you have. Uh, an infection in one of those. Okay, so so they don't necessarily have to follow that that diverticulitis diet that we used to recommend for for all of our patients. I, I agree. I think that's been de- debunked as well. Yeah, that's correct. 
Well, uh, Dr. Nelson, let's talk a little bit about constipation and stool softeners. Getting a few emails here about different types of stool softeners. So let's just begin with what what is your diagnosis or what is your I'm sorry what is your definition of constipation? Yep, excellent question. So if you um, once again if if you guys have access to that Bristol stool chart, type ones and twos are constipation. So stool pellets or if you're straining to have a bowel movement, even if it looks normal, but you ha you're needing to sit on the commode for 30 minutes or more in order to get it to pass, that's constipation. Um, or, you know, less than three bowel movements a week is um, constipation issues also. Um, the treatment of constipation is there's, the treatments are vast and broad. There's uh, several different medical and conservative therapies. As we mentioned, fiber is a very good initial starting therapy, uh, good liquid intake with fluid and with water and exercise. All those things are, from a very conservative perspective, can be very helpful with constipation-related issues. As we get into the medicinal therapies, that's, you know, stool softeners are good. Stool softeners don't necessarily cause you to have a bowel movement, though. They just basically make the stool a little bit softer. So if you are one of those Bristol type 1s where you're the moose pellets, you know, that can help, um, or the moose pellets kind of in a uh, clumped together as a type 2, uh, those stool softeners can help with that too. I, I will say though, if you're most of the time, if you're having real significant constipation issues, you're going to need something more than a stool softener. It's my personal uh, preference that at this point I usually go with a Miralax-based therapy, and that is a, um, you know, that regulates your stools. It's very safe. You can take it every day, and it works really well. It doesn't cause, you know, it's not a stimulant where it doesn't cause any contractions of the colon, um, and it just kind of changes a little bit of the fluid balance in your colon to help you have better bowel movements. So. Uh, but even on top of Miralax, there's there's several different therapies. But if you're getting to that point where you're needing to have additional therapy beyond Miralax, those are all prescription-based medications, and you should probably see your uh, doctor about it. Okay. And um, Colace and things like that, can they be taken long-term safely? Mm -hmm. Yep. Both Colace and Miralax can be taken long-term safely. Okay. And then I'll mention also with, with constipation, it's it, you always want to identify if there's a, you know, a, another cause. And so this particular um, a person here in the email mentioned that they had been on opioids for a surgery. And certainly opioids can uh, really lock down the bowel or cause severe constipation that can take a while to resolve. So do you, um, I'm sure you, you also recommend looking at that type of thing. Absolutely. Yep. Opioids because they can cause really significant constipation. There's several other additional things that may potentially cause constipation, thyroid problems, kidney problems. If you're anemic, it can cause constipation. Even like vitamin D deficiencies can cause constipation. So if you're having like suddenly new constipation issues out of nowhere, then yeah, we typically will do a panel of blood work and just to make sure that there's no other, um, you know, hormonal-related issues that could be potentially playing a role. Okay, excellent. Well, we're going to take our second short break of the show. You are listening to Line 1, your health connection. If you have a question or a comment for our guest today, give us a call statewide, 1-888-353-5752, or in Anchorage, 550-8433. 
855-850-8433. After the short break, we'll continue our discussion on bowel movements with gastroenterologist Dr. Austin Nelson. You're listening to Line 1 from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line 1 on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, did you know that one out of four Alaska high school students currently use e-cigarettes? E-cigarettes are easy to use and easy to hide. What teens breathe in and out from e-cigarettes is not safe. It contains cancer-causing chemicals, toxic metals, and nicotine. Nicotine can lead to addiction. It can harm brain development and hurt memory, learning, and attention span. Parents, talk to your teens about vaping. Visit livevapefree at alaskaquitline.com. This message sponsored by the Alaska Tobacco Quitline. Welcome back to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Clark. I'm joined by gastroenterologist, Dr. Austin Nelson. Do you have more questions about the colon, diarrhea, constipation? Call us toll-free statewide, 1-888-353-5752, 1-888-353-5752, or at Anchorage, 550-8433. You can also email me at line1 at alaskapublic.org. Okay, Dr. Nelson, we're not getting a lot of calls today. I think maybe it's a sensitive subject for some or they don't want to call, but I am just loaded with emails here, and I want to uh, try to get through as many as possible. Um, let's see here. So what about antibiotics um, and the colon or, or a bacterial infection in the colon? Um, how can that uh, cause issues for patients? Yeah, great question. So we do see bacterial infections in the colon more frequently than, um, you know, you, most people would actually think. It's pretty common. They're, the, 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 the infections themselves actually can do several different types of things. One of the most common actually causes of irritable bowel syndrome is actually to have an infection in your colon. Um, where it causes some nerve damages, some dysregulatory contractions of the colon, so we do see that fairly frequently. Now, it, there's frequent questions also about antibiotic administration for whatever reason, whether that may be in colon infections, you know, and how that plays a role. But even if you have antibiotics given for a sinus infection or for a pneumonia or something, it can, not only does it kill the bacteria in your sinus and in your colon, it, it also does play a significant uh, role in, in your gut normal bacteria, so it eradicates all that good bacteria that's in our bowels. Can cause diarrhea, we do see that very frequently, an antibiotic-associated diarrhea. Most of the time that self-regulates after a month or so, um, and, but it can frequently also cause you to have some chronic long-term complications, as I mentioned, with irritable bowel syndrome uh, when you have infections like that. Um, the, there's frequent questions about probiotics and mm-hmm. um, antibiotics, and I'll just briefly touch on that. There's been a lot of controversy on that uh, for several years. Do we give probiotics after an infection in your colon? Do we give antibi- probiotics with antibiotics? And there's kind of been some recent new data come out that has actually suggested that the probiotic administration after uh, antibiotics actually delays the time of recovery of your normal gut bacteria in comparison to a good just prebiotic diet and just kind of letting your body do it uh, do 
its thing and regulates that bacteria itself. So, so you know, I I, I know that's kind of vague, but there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of problems that antibiotics cause. They're certainly revolutionized medicine, and they're needed at times, but they can have some significant side effects um, in the GI tract. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, those probiotics, I, I know the data has gone back and forth on those, and, and we certainly use them at times in, in surgical patients as well. So thanks for the yep. update on that. Uh, the, the gut microbiome is, is an amazing thing, and there's some really great research going on in that. So, um, you know, that would be a nice, uh, interesting uh, show idea perhaps in the future as well. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Very fascinating. Okay, what about menopause and bowel movements? Is there any relationship between menopause and bowel irregularities? Yes, there is. That's a great question. So menopause, obviously, your your GI tract is um, very uh, complicated. The nervous system, you know, so for instance, and I always kind of share this analogy with uh, my patients where you'll come in and you have, you know, if you... Uh, you have your volitional control over your hands and your arms and your legs, and you know exactly where you get a tiny little cut on your fingers. The GI tract is under its own independent control. So we have, um, we'll eat food, and really the only volitional control we have over that is when we chew it and the initial swallowing, and then everything else just happens, right? It just, our body is a miraculous entity, and it just kind of takes care of itself. There's so many different inputs into that, hormonal inputs, as uh, we've talked about already. Um, the, the, there's two different nerve layers in your GI tract, so any type of uh, nervous system problems will cause you uh, issues. So the, so the menopause-related question, absolutely. There's, there's a variety of different symptoms, and it's interesting how they how it can be drastically different in two individuals. Sometimes people get constipated issues after they go through menopause, and that's just because of the lack of hormones um, or the change in your overall uh, hormonal milieu. But sometimes people can also have some diarrheal-related issues. Those are very normal. They are very common. Most of the time, your body adjusts to that over time as you as you finish menopause, and it kind of gets reset afterwards. Uh, but you will have a period of time through that menopause uh, uh through those hormonal fluctuations where you have some changes in your bowel habits. Great. And uh, we have a call coming in from Homer. Donna, welcome to Line One. Hi. Thanks so much for the program. Sure. Um, yeah, I just was curious if you could talk a little more. Um, I wondered if you could uh, address whether women choose to nurse their children or bottle feed them as babies. I'm in my 60s, it was a time when there was not a lot, you know, there was discouraging of nursing newborns. Um, in my years of my life, I've experienced a lot of intestinal issues. So just talking about the colostrum and stuff, if you could address that and um, the benefits of that, because I remember my dad telling me, from the very, he's like, yeah, when you were a baby, I mean, you had little rabbit turds in your diaper, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Sure. So in any case, um, constipation has been a, a, a lifelong battle for me. Um, but the other thing is if you could, the thing that has mostly improved my quality of, of life and um, digestion is paying attention to diet. 
and I just haven't heard you guys talk a whole lot about diet and um, as a, you know, upstream way to, um, so that people don't end up with irritable bowel syndrome and every other kind of issue. So anyway, I'll hang up and take it off the air. Okay. Thanks, Donna. Thanks, Donna. So Dr. Nelson, diet uh, related to bowel movements and... um, Sorry, any association with uh, breastfeeding versus bottle feeding with further bowel function in the... Yeah, excellent. Great, great question, Donna. Thank you so much for bringing those up. And diet, you are absolutely right. Diet plays a a tremendous role in our GI tract. Um, Their dietary manipulation is probably the key to everything. Um, That's what we typically do, first-line therapy. I'll very briefly touch based on a couple of different things. There has been a lot of data out there about a low FODMAP diet, F-O-D-M-A-P, and irritable bowel syndrome. We do know that individuals who consume foods that are high in FODMAPs have significantly worse um, symptoms, bloating, pain, um, and they can exacerbate underlying um, irritable bowel syndrome. They cause some transient inflammation in the small bowel wall too. So we, that's one of our first-line therapies is eliminating FODMAPs, um, a good anti-inflammatory diet. There's more and more data coming out on all the time is uh, the classic Mediterranean-type diet, which is also very helpful, a uh, good prebiotic-type diet, too, and that's inclusive in a Mediterranean-type diet. So, so, yeah, typically what I do is I recommend a low FODMAP diet. Um, uh, for individuals with irritable bowel and bowel dysfunction um, and as a health promotion, uh, Mediterranean and, uh, you know, healthy fruits, healthy vegetables, um, lean meats, uh, proteins. Uh, now, from a breastfeeding perspective, very, very good questions. There's, there's a constant flux, and I know this is a very sensitive subject to several individuals, there, there is some data to suggest. So our, our immune system in our uh, GI tract is exquisitely complicated. And I would be lying to you if I tell you we had a complete good grasping, grasp and understanding of everything that went on and how it worked. You know, we do believe that a lot of the autoimmune diseases may be stemming from the GI tract and just because it has such a robust immune system there. Um, there is some data to suggest that um, breastfeeding would be more helpful in um, augmenting that um, immune response and, um, you know, helpful from a long-term perspective from GI gut health. But once again, it's, it's ever-changing. Um, by no means am I suggesting that doing one form or another is uh, would would be the right choice for anybody, um, and it's still an an evolution, right? We were saying we the science changes all the time. We were saying different things 30 to 40 years ago about breastfeeding that we are nowadays, and it'll probably change again in several years from now. But that's kind of where we're at right now. So excellent. And we have another call uh, coming from Anchor Point. We have Kristen. Welcome to Line One, Kristen. Oh, thank you. Um... I was wondering, E. coli is found in the gut, and I, I suspect is part of the bacteria needed to digest food and absorb uh, various nutritions. And yet, when it gets out of you, and if it gets into the water supply or it gets contaminated onto food, it becomes a deadly poison that can just about kill you. Um, why is that? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks, Kristen. Dr. Nelson, why doesn't it hurt us on the inside, but it can hurt us once it gets out? 
Yeah, great question. So, you know, E. coli is kind of an interesting bug. There's there's several different variations of E. coli. So we actually have very healthy E. coli that are part of our normal gut bacteria. Um, and those uh, particular strains are completely healthy. They cause no problems. But there's some strains of E. coli, um, and it's dependent on the toxin that they produce that can cause problems no matter where they're at. So the ones that you typically hear about in the food and in the, um, you know, or whether in a water supply or wherever you may be picking up that E. coli is a slightly different strain of E. coli than the normal gut bacterial strains that we have. Um, so that's like a shigatoxin-producing E. coli is one form of them. You know, there's, there's actually a whole handful of different toxin-producing E. coli, some of which are helpful for us and as part of our normal gut bacteria, and some of which are harmful. Okay, excellent. And we have time for another caller here. We have Melanie from Anchorage. Melanie, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, question. So I've had tummy trouble my entire life. It is, it's always in the lower GI, it always had been. Um, lots of flatulence, lots of, um, yeah, just tummy aches because of gas. And now as I'm, I'm menopausal, um, I, as I grow older, now it's, it's manifesting in my upper GI now. I have acid reflux, GERD. I mean, I've had it now, and I know it's due to stress in the last few years, but, um, like, I've had it for at least a year straight, and I can't get rid of it. Um, I've tried everything, had the H. pylori test. Um, you did the, um, uh, uh, the, not the colonoscopy, but the top part of the, the endoscopy. Mm-hmm. Had one of those done, everything was fine, but I just can't get rid of my acid, my GERD, and I was just wondering if that could manifest. I don't have irritable ball, I'm pretty sure, but I was just wondering if you could talk on the the GERD part. Yeah, no, thanks, Melanie. That's a that's a huge topic. It's a great uh, another show idea here is talking about reflux and whatnot. But um, Dr. Nelson, with your your scopes and you know maybe you can touch real quick here in the last few minutes on what H. pylori is and, and other sources of reflux. Yeah, great question. It's an, it's a very very common problem, especially as we age, reflux related issues. So I'll briefly touch on H. pylori. So H. pylori is a very common bacteria um, that invades the stomach lining and can put you at risk for gastric stomach ulcers and stomach cancer can cause pain is one of the primarily producing symptoms. Um, And there's some various types of reflux related issues that can also be associated with uh, H. pylori. Um, Reflux, as Dr. Clark mentioned, it's very complicated. Um, You know, sometimes we there, there's a little sphincter muscle at the base of our esophagus that at times can just become a little bit lax and relaxed over the years. Um, but you know we always look for structural anomalies, hiatal hernias, which is kind of a weakness in your diaphragm where your stomach comes up. That can cause some sudden worsening reflux symptoms. You know, and I mean this is certainly a topic for another show, but sometimes. People just get refractory symptoms despite all different types of medicines that we try, you know, some surgical interventions for those types of things too. Um, but, but certainly part of the whole GI issue, um, but a little bit different uh, uh, symptom pattern than some of your lower GI symptoms, um, that, you know, as we get some real significant problems with reflux as we age. 
Excellent. Yeah, that's a that's another source of a of a wonderful show is is reflux and the treatments and and whatnot. I wish we had more time to um, talk about all of those things, as well as um, getting quite a few emails about ulcerative colitis and Crohn's inflammatory bowel disease. So again, I'll invite Dr. Nelson back for a topic of those. Um, we have just a, another two minutes or so here, Dr. Nelson. Let's do a wrap up. Um, anything you want to get across to our listeners? Anything um, you know? Uh, they come see you, or how do they how do they get a hold of you if they have questions and things like that? Yeah, we. I'm happy to see anybody that has any questions. Just call our clinic directly, and we're happy to come in and have you. And we can certainly talk about any of the issues that you've had. Um, you know, part of what I tell everybody is the the gut is a um, a very very important part of our life. Um, the it 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 oftentimes gets under recognized in in life, and we um, and uh, but very important, right? It's part of our immune system. It's how we absorb all our nutrition. It's how we sustain ourselves from a day-to-day basis. Um, some of the key things is, is if you have severe symptoms just and things that just don't seem right, don't ignore those. Yeah, some of the, and we haven't even touched on colon cancer or anything like that today, but um, certainly very common and on the rise. And so there's, you know, if, if something just seems off to you, one of the things that we see very commonly are people just will brush symptoms under, uh, you know, and just brush them to the side and ignore them, and then, you know, things become more severe and then some catastrophic things. So uh, if things seem off, by all means, go be evaluated. Come in and see me. We're happy to take care of you here. So. No, absolutely, and and thank you, uh, thank you for that. We have plenty more to talk about on another show. Thank you for all of the listeners, and we're going to have to call it an end to the show today. So I just want to provide special thanks to our guest for being with us today, gastroenterologist Dr. Austin Nelson. Thanks for our audio engineer Tobin Shelby and our producer Adeline Baxter. You can find more information on this and previous programs on our website at alaskapublic.org. Let us know your thoughts or suggestions by emailing us at line1 at alaskapublic.org. This has been Line 1, your health connection. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Clark. Stay safe, Alaska. is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the host and participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Anchorage Bariatrics has been a supporter of Alaska Public Media. Learn more about Line 1 and listen online at alaskapublic.org. Life informed. This is Alaska Public Media.